Welcome to the Aspen Chapel podcast with Nicholas and Heather Vesey. So from Deuteronomy, acknowledge and take to heart this day that the Lord is God in heaven above and on the earth below. There is no other. Keep his decrees and commands which I'm giving you today so that it may go well with you and your children after you and that you may live long in the land the Lord your God gives you for a time. Well, I've always thought that I'm in the the God business. Part of my reason, in a sense, for being ordained in the Anglican Church was that it was the one place in the UK where you could talk about God without being considered crazy. You know, I was never going to change my name to Prem Anand something or other. And, and, you know, I've done my colours. I'm a winter and yellow was never really my colour. So becoming a trendy Buddhist uh, was out. And, you know, in England, if you got at the doorstep chatting about God, then people normally ran a mile. Um, But if you said you're a Church of England vicar, they said, oh, that's all right. Come in, have a cup of tea. And uh, being in the Church of England, or Episcopal, uh, gave me an acceptable way of talking about God. Because, you know, if you come, in, in England we have something called rock. Do you have that candy here? where you, the Rock is a hard candy and they write letters all the way through. And if you cut me in half uh, like a bit of rock, you'd see written on me in the inside what my life was really about was bearing witness to the existence of God. You know, that's, that's what I'm really about. And at some point in my life, I became convinced that there was more to all this than just what you can see and touch and feel and taste in our lives. That there was more than just the material world. That there was something greater of which I was a part. Some greater order to everything. And and I've had an experience of that. And because of that, I thought it was my duty to communicate that, that there was something more. Because I saw most people living their lives as, as if there was no tomorrow. And by that, I mean there was no ultimate meaning to what they were all doing. It didn't really matter. So they might as well just get on with what they could and get what they could out of their lives with you know, the consequences could really go hang. Not only that, but most people operated as if they were completely separate to everything else, that they were operating as individual units and that there was no substantial connection with the rest of the universe. And so therefore they could do whatever they wanted with impunity, steal, kill, make wars, subjugate others, again, as if there was no tomorrow. And for me, there was a tomorrow. And I'd experienced it. And by tomorrow, I mean another dimension that contained all that we experience, that connected it and ordered it into a balance that was continually progressing towards an expression of perfection that was latent within that expression. And, you know, having had this experience in my life, 
I always felt, as I said, that it was my duty to communicate the existence of that other realm to others, to say, you know, hey, don't you know there's more to life than just this? Don't you know that, as the original vision of the Aspen Chapel actually says, that there is foremost a spiritual dimension to our existence? In other words, bearing witness to the existence of God. You know, to some extent, that's, that's why we're all here today. We're, we're all actually here in the business of God. And that's what people in churches and synagogues and temples and mosques are doing all over the world. They're trying to work out how to live their lives according to that order that we call God. And what do we mean by that? the word God. What does any religion mean by it? The Buddhists will tell you that there is, there's not a God, there's a, there's a self, a ground of being. The Hindus will tell you that there are thousands of gods. The Jews will say that there's only one God, and so will the Muslims. And the Christians will say, well, there is one God, but it's divided into three parts. And it's the Taoists, who are always, I think, extremely wise. Taoists will say, that God or the Tao is beyond words. The more you talk about it, the farther away you get from it. Only when you're truly attached to words or to silence, and only when you're truly unattached to words or to silence, can you express the truth. So is there really, the Tao is really saying, you, you really can't talk about this. But so I'm not going to just sit in silence now for half an hour, which is very tempting to do. <laughs> However, you know, the truth is that, you know, at the risk of getting a bit further away from it, I do want to talk about this concept of God. What, what can we say about ultimate reality? Or, or, you know, is it, as the psalmists say, too wonderful for us to know? Obviously, I think any talk about God is highly personal. Just as there are many religions that profess to say what they think that this truth is all about. So within those religions, there are millions of people who each have a different perspective within those religions of what that God is. And so I think we, we really have to be careful about what we say, because each of us only has a partial view, like those five blind men who try to describe the elephant by touching it. One touches the tail, one the trunk one the ear, one the foot, and one the belly. Each of those blind men will have a totally different reality of what they've touched, but they'll only begin to get the reality when they talk together, when they compare notes. So humanity, I think, will only really begin to appreciate the nature of the divine when the religions begin to talk with each other rather than argue. And we, as individuals, get to develop our understanding by sharing what we know with each other. Which I think why religion is a corporate thing. And why in another part of our vision here, the chapel asks, you know, the chapel vision asks us to create a national global ecumenical center for seminars and dialogues on theological concerns in contemporary society. Because it's only through that dialogue that we begin to get a sense of the nature of that order within which we all exist. 
all of us are seeking that knowledge of God. Rilke puts it really well when he says, I'm the one who's asking you. It hurts to ask, Rilke says, who are you? I am orphaned. Each time the sun goes down, I am orphaned. I can feel cast out from everything. Even the churches look like prisons. That's when I want you. You knower of my emptiness. You unspeaking partner to my sorrow. That's when I need you, God, like food. That's the hunger that's out there for getting a sense of that ground of being. And that's what we try to satisfy when we go about the business of God. Hazrat Khan says there are two approaches to knowing God. One is the person who imagines God. The other is the one who is conscious of God. The one who imagines thinks there's a God and sees that God with all the beauty and virtue that she can supply. Good, merciful, and compassionate. That God is the almighty supreme being, the perfecter of love. She sees God as a friend that she can turn to in sorrow. She sees God as the Lord, Father, and Mother. She, she adores God, asks for forgiveness, and looks to God for help. She hopes one day to attain God. The other view of God, the one that is conscious of God, is the one who sees God in all around her. All goodness is the goodness of God. All beauty is divine beauty. All around her is a manifestation of God that can be experienced. And God's seen in the eyes of all beings that she encounters. She doesn't believe in God. She encounters God in her life without belief or understanding. In reality, Khan says, both these points of view are part of a human evolution that can't be separated. He says that no one reaches old age without having passed through youth. And in our exploration of the nature of God, we have to see both these perspectives before we can look at the reality of the beingness that we call God. We have to first look at the way we're looking at the question about God that we're asking. We have to look at the question that we're asking rather than say anything definite. Are we looking from our imagination or are we looking from what we're conscious of? To look from our imagination is to create God as the bestest of the best. To imagine him or her as being the summit of all goodness. To look at God from our consciousness is a more difficult problem. Because not all of life is experienced as the bestest of the best. It's often more difficult. People are often looking for God in darkness, feeling God, but not believing. Rilke again. 
They see not the faintest glimmer of the morning and listen in vain for the cock's crow. The night is a huge house whose doors are torn open by terrified hands. They lead to endless corridors. There seems no way out. God, every night is like that. Always there is some awake who turn, turn, and do not find you. Don't you hear them blindly treading the dark? Don't you hear them crying out? They go further and further down. Surely you hear them weep, for they are weeping. I seek you because they are passing right by my door. Whom should I turn to if not the one whose darkness is darker than the night? The only one who keeps vigil with no candle and is not afraid. The deep one whose being I trust, for it breaks through the earth into the trees and rises when I bow my head, faint as a fragrance from the soil. We're asked to look for God in that darkness rather than to believing something that our mind has created, that idealized, fabricated reality of goodness and mercy that our minds come up with has to bump against the darkness that most of us feel as we fumble through our lives. But our first step to finding what we seek is to realize that we have to trust our very existence, our very beingness as being the starting point of that journey. Last week I used that quote from the Wisdom of Solomon, for God created man to be immortal and made him to be an image of his own eternity. The righteous, because they are made in the image of God, can rest in the full hope of eternal life. In trusting that darkness, we're trusting something that is eternal, that leads us. We're to rest in the life that we're given. However the darkness comes upon us, in order, as Rilke says, to find the deep one in whose being I trust, for it breaks through the earth, the darkness, into the trees, into the light. In this way, God is not to be thought of or imagined, but encountered in the darkness of the way that we're living. And only when we begin to do this can we begin our journey into what seems to be the unknowable and about which we cannot speak. Often then our inquiry about God begins in the wrong place. It begins with us trying to find something that we've thought of in our mind rather than in our hearts, which we encounter and experience on a day-to-day -day basis. You know, Moses was briefing the Israelites, again in Deuteronomy, where that passage come from, and he said, you know, he's, Moses says to the Israelites, ask now about the former days, long before your time, before the day God created human beings on earth. Ask from one end of the heavens to the other, has anything so great ever happened? Or has anything like this, their journey, ever been heard of? Has any other people heard the voice of God speaking out of the fire as you have and lived? Has any God ever tried to take from himself one nation or another by testing, by signs and wonders, by war, by his mighty hand. 
from heaven, the voice of God has disciplined you because he loved your ancestors. He took you out of Egypt. Acknowledge and take heart this day that the Lord your God is in heaven and above and there is no other. You see, you don't have to think about it. You don't have to think about God. You see God in the day-to-day history of where God has brought you. It brought the Israelites out of Egypt, even though it was tough, even though they were dying all the time. The presence of God was there. And we're asked to look at our life and see God in what Moses was saying. But we don't want to look at our lives to see God because, you know, often we look at our lives and we just don't think our lives are up to it. We don't think our lives bear witness to that. We don't think they're as marvelous as we imagine God to be. And so we discount what we see with our eyes and hear with our ears as not being worthy of God's majesty. Well, I, you know, I ask you to look again. And this time begin to look without judgment, without a desire to experience one thing or another, without seeking one outcome or another. But just in the looking and in the encountering, it's odd, but I think that this is how we begin our conscious experience of God rather than trying to attain some idealized, fabricated reality. So instead of looking for that peak experience or this peaceful, gooey love, we're asked to radically accept the experiences that come our way, like the traumas that the Israelites went through, our day-to-day aggravations, our problems, our circumstances. These are the connecting points because God comes to us in the circumstances of our lives and asks us to respond in depth rather than just to the circumstances. It's our response to those circumstances. In that response, we're able to connect with God. By responding in love, we connect with that love which is at the center of all things. And this is what it means to live in love. It is our response, our circumstances, and the way our life comes at us is the touch of the divine. And we're asked to respond from love. You know, as Khalil Gilbran says, much of your pain is self-chosen. It is the bitter potion by which the physician within you heals your sick self. Therefore, trust the physician and drink his remedy in silence and tranquility. For his hand, though heavy and hard, is guided by the tender hand of the unseen. And the cup he brings, though it burns your lips, has been fashioned of the clay which the potter has moistened with his own sacred tears. We're surrounded by God in everything and in every way. And our connection comes not in the sharp blows that we receive, but in the love that we bring to bear encountering those blows. By connecting with the love that's within us, we connect to the love in all the universe. And in the two merging, we become one with it all and we begin to become conscious of God. 
And next week, we'll look more about what that encountering God um, might look like. So I think uh, Julie is now going to sing uh, uh, with her with group, Listen to the Sound of, of Silence. charm for what we're talking about at the moment, the, uh, the sort of many names of God. Um, there's a microphone there. If anyone wants to come and say anything, uh, just stand in front of it, and I'll, I'll know that, that, that you can do that. Um, yeah, I, I just think it's essentially, when we, have, when we say the word God, we've sort of got a shorthand, you know, what that means, and it, it generally means an old person in the, in the sky. You know, that, that is, I mean, that's the simplest way we do go to that. But also, you know, in a, in a more sort of, sort of liberal place, you think of God as being, you know, the ground of being and things like that. And we, I, I, it's interesting that we do think we know what we're talking about when we say that word. But actually, you know, what's being reflected back to us is we haven't got a clue. Yeah, it's such a shame that the word God is, is so unhelpful, isn't it? Like I'm, yeah. very, I'm very conscious about, about using it and um, realise that it can be a bit alienating. And I was, I was in a little Sufi group the other day, and was so, like, I'm exploring Sufism quite a bit. And, um, and just so struck by the, the repetitive use of tons of names for God. And we just, we just don't do that so much in the Christian tradition, do we? We're very lazy Yeah. use just the word God. But um, all the different words for God, it's just endless, you know. And what it does, it, it shapes our minds into thinking how we perceive God shapes our mind as to how we perceive our world. Because our conception, if we have a conception of, of God being an old person in the sky, then actually it just really means that we have to, you know, we have to placate that person, we have to make them nice to us. And, you know, it just gives you a whole perspective. If you see it as a ground of all being, then, you know, you're open to it being from everywhere. And it, that conceptualization, that worldview, completely dictates the worldview that, that we have individually, doesn't it? Yeah, I feel like it's really important to, to start with our experience, really, in a way, and just and and start from within and work without, rather than rather than start out there and try and make sense of it. Like if we if we really inhabit our experience of, of God, um, you know, that, then it's real. Then we can we're really working with resonance and um, recognition, like heart recognition, like what actually makes sense. Well, you know, and and that that. That is interesting. That, that, that calls me. And it doesn't really help when we have that concept of catechism. You know, we get people along, you know, young people who say, right, this is, this is who God is, you know. And you just give them a whole series of pictures and ideas. You don't say, actually, well, the truth is, we don't know. <laughs> Nobody's ever known. And they go, what do you mean? Don't no, we really don't know. Now, perhaps, you know, what is your experience? You know, what do you think? Where do you think you came from? Where do you think that that, that, that thing is? And... And then you get people starting to consider that, that, that possibility themselves. And to not know, you know, particularly in a position I'm in, to not know, you know, it get, means it gets vulnerable. Because what are we talking about if I don't know? You know, I, I so appreciate, like, Richard Raw talks a lot about balancing knowing with not knowing. 
And that's what we, I think we need to do. Like we've got you know, all these traditions to draw on. You know, there's a lot of knowing. Um, and, and to, you know, to draw on that and to balance it with our, with our own not knowing. Yes. And that, that for me is the best place to live. It's, you know, it can only be a place of humility and wonder and exploration and love and resonance. And that not knowing is really the beginner's mind of the meditator. And if there's, no, if there's anything else, you know, can, can lead from today, from this hour that we spent together, is to go out and just to not know. To go out and just to see what comes to you. And just to see where that connection is. And see if we can have that, you know, not have that judgment of, well, that can't be God because it doesn't feel good. Or that must be God because it feels great. You know, the moment you start judging on these things, then you get into trouble. Thanks for listening. If you feel moved to make a donation to the chapel, please go to aspenchapel.org. Thank you. And if you'd like to receive these podcasts regularly, subscribe to the Aspen Chapel through Apple, Google Play, YouTube, or any other outlet.